Let's look at the incomprehensible ancient of days. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. Last week, we left off from verses 1 to 8 of Daniel's vision of kingdoms and kings successively passing from one to the next. And we said that this is a glimpse of all human history, that powerful leaders come and go. And this isn't a a good look at the power and pride of these leaders. It's a realistic one. It's powerful in its imagery. In apocalyptic literature, literature in the Bible, a genre about the end, apocalyptic literature like Revelation or Daniel 7, is meant to be powerful because of the images in it. What it lacks sometimes is precision. As in, we get moved by the pictures we see, we just don't have all the fine details to understand entirely what it is. So just remember that as a little helpful hint when you're reading Revelation or Daniel 7 to 12. Think of the words powerful imagery, but not precise in our understanding of it. And that's okay. That's understandable that we wouldn't know precisely the meaning of every single detail of these prophecies. In fact, if you look back at verse 1, Daniel said he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter, as in he wrote the dream down because he wanted to remember it, and we get the details. But he wanted to tell the sum of the matter, didn't he? That's what verse 1 says, which means don't lose the forest, the sum of the matter of interpreting Daniel 7 through 12 for the trees. So tell me about these wings that were plucked off the lion. I mean, how many in particular and in what order? You know, that's not why Daniel gave you the details. He gave us just enough as the Lord intended to be able to come to some conclusions. But the big conclusion is God wins in the end. And we're never to forget that. And that's actually what Daniel 1 through 6 has been telling you all along. You can be God's person or God's people in exile. And 1 Peter tells us we are what? Sojourners. We're strangers on this earth. And no matter how bad it gets around you, for you as an individual like Daniel or his friends, God is still in control. And never count out what he is going to do in any given situation. So as we jump into verse 9... Daniel's looking up, away from the chaos of creation, of the mutants, we'll call them. Those four beasts representing what was lost in man, in sin. That any, any king with any amount of power in history has a corrupted nature by sin, and their kingdom is going to therefore have some corruption in it. That's what's symbolized by these creatures that he can't even describe well. But then he looks up to heaven. As things look bad down on earth, he looks and he sees thrones and the Ancient of Days taking his seat, which means God, the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One, is in control. There's nobody threatening this throne. There's nothing out of order on this throne. And this this Ancient of Days is seated and he's ruling and reigning. And in the next few lines, verses 9 and 10, there is one character quality about this Ancient of Days that we need to see and say so that our hearts can be lifted up today. And if you had to summarize 9 and 10 and say, what is it about the ancient of days that we should be encouraged by? It's this one character quality that outshines them all, God's holiness. Daniel, like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he looks up to the heavens, he sees a 
holy God. And we see five aspects of holiness about the Ancient of Days, starting with his name. It's a holy name in verse 9. The Ancient of Days is a name that means immortal, infinite, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. In the Aramaic, the Ancient of Days was just a term meaning one who is outside of time. He is not constrained on the same timeline that we are constrained on. Therefore, he is all-powerful over all of time. Now, the word holiness means set apart in the Bible. So back in chapter 1, when it said that um, Nebuchadnezzar had brought the vessels of Solomon's temple into Babylon and then they were desecrated in chapter 5 by Belshazzar's party. That would be taking something holy, set apart, and using it for profane things. So when you think of the word holiness, think of first, just on a very concrete level, something that should be set apart and it's like uh, grandma's nice china you just had Thanksgiving on. It is set apart. comes out Thanksgiving and maybe Christmas and it's hand-washed. You don't throw it through the dishwasher. You got to sit there and let it soak. And, and I see some husbands mumbling, yeah, I know that. Uh, because you were reprimanded. Don't you dare put that in the dishwasher. Hand wash that stuff. That's the common way, holiness, the very practical way it's seen in the Old Testament. You don't take God's holy vessels for his temple, for his tabernacle, and taint them with sinful man. When you do, bad things happen. Nate Abedabahu, Leviticus 10, offered profane, unclean offering to God with the vessels, and they were vaporized. Now, that's a very practical, concrete way to look at it, but there's a, 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 a wider view of God's holiness, and it is in the name Ancient of Days, one who is absolutely unapproachable. An eternal God, we just can't um, find a magic carpet or some transportation system and get our way to him, can't we? It's not even just that he is unapproachable in the heavens. Sorry, SpaceX. You're not building a rocket to get to him. He is outside of time. That's the holiness of God. Absolute unapproachability and overpoweringness and awful majesty that gives us a sense of absolute nothingness, a creature consciousness that should produce some amount of absolute humiliation in us when we compare ourselves to the Almighty. So his name is holy. Point made? Let's move on. His appearance is holy. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. We know God is spirit. He doesn't have hair. It's like pure wool. No clothing, white as snow. What? These images are pure images, holy images, pure white, no speck of sin. So this is the holiness of God in moral perfection. Nothing unclean, nothing unrighteous. So his appearance is holy that Daniel sees in a vision. And then his presence is holy. Look at the next few lines. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came up before him. Are you getting the picture of what is the presence of God like? It's a consuming fire. That anything impure around that fire is going to be purified. And you know that's how things are purified. 
unearth some, some rock and you think there's some gold in it, you melt it down. You remove the dross to have the purity of it. Fire, heat does that. That's the imagery here. It's, it's purifying in his presence. His holiness consumes all impurity near him. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 50. A parallel image to the one that Daniel has. It says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. When he wants to get the earth's attention, he just speaks. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Out our God comes. He does not keep silence. And here it is. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. That's a picture of the holiness of God as it has to do with these uh, fiery flames and burning fire and fire issuing out and coming before him. It is burning off any impurity around him. So it's his name, it's his appearance, it's his presence that all give one picture. He is holy, holy, holy. That's the vision Daniel gets. Who could possibly stand in his presence? We'll look back at verse 10. There are a thousand thousand serving him and 10,000 times 10,000 standing before him. How could that be possible? Well, these have to be holy people, holy creatures. He is holy. His name is holy. His appearance is holy. His, his presence is holy. His power is holy. And now you have a holy people. The question is, how possibly could some approach this holy God? And the answer comes in Hebrews chapter 12. Interestingly enough, Hebrews chapter 12, we all know the first verse, therefore we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And that even evokes imagery of where we were just in Daniel 7, doesn't it? There's this image Daniel has of this cloud of witnesses. It says, serving God, thousands upon thousands, he can't count that many. How could these witnesses be in his presence? Well, it's not the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 that tells us how, it's the middle Hebrews 12, 18, 19, and 20 reminds the people reading this letter in the New Testament that, you know, Israel, when they were before Mount Sinai, they could not even touch the mountain. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, verse 21. So here's the holy God that these people in the Old Testament knew, unapproachable, only Moses Chosen by God and set apart as holy by God. Says you can come up. But for the rest of them they're trembling and staying away from this mountain. How then can we come into the presence of a holy God? Verse 22 Hebrews 12. But you believer. Here's how you make it. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's how you get in. You've got to be made perfect. Who does that? Next verse, verse 24. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The old covenant, the, the sacrificial system is done away with. Anyone that is going to come to this holy God now comes one way. 
as the writer of Hebrews mentions, and that's based on the righteousness of Christ, not in ourselves. He's made us righteous. But see, Daniel doesn't see that. All Daniel could see is that in the holy presence of God, there are people serving him. And and as I alluded to last week, there would be something as Daniel is in exile. He's been there now if this vision came in the first year of Belshazzar, verse 1. So it's 553. So he's been in Babylon three decades. He knows he's going to be there 70 years And he's risen up to power, but it's lonely at the top, as they say. Especially lonely at the top of a pagan kingdom. A polytheistic pagan kingdom, where at times a tyrant king can want to uh, throw you in a furnace or in a lion's den based on your belief. Think he was lonely? Think he had doubts at times? Imagine the encouragement he had when Daniel thinks he is maybe the last faithful one left and he sees this vision that the God of heaven is being served and praised by 10,000 times 10,000. Do we need to do that maybe more often? On a non-practical level, do you think on the great cloud of witnesses Surrounding the throne of God and giving him praise forever. Always going on. No matter what's going on here. Down in man's chaotic kingdoms. Praise is going on there. But let's go from the impractical to the practical. Do you know how you get an encouragement to that end? How we get a foretaste of that glory? You're doing it right now. This is why we need to gather. This is why staying home on a regular basis... The blessing of live stream is that when kids are sick, not feeling well, you're out of town on vacation, tune in. But you need the cloud of witnesses around you here. You need to hear the voices of other believers here. Because think of all the time you spend out there. And all the time that the world is going to, like we'll see in 11 and 12, have a voice in your ear that wants you to just look down. When you come in Sunday morning, our 90 minutes together is designed with one purpose. Look up. Look up. And it doesn't cut it to look up on TV. As wonderful as that is, that's a a good thing. I know many homebound saints, hard to make it out. I got a wife at home this morning with some sick kids. And she's maybe tuning in. I would think so. It's, you know, taking care of sick kids. Maybe not. She can catch the replay, but that can't replace this. So come. If you're a guest visiting from out of town, hope you have a local church you're committed to because you need it. No solo Christians out there who will be healthy in the long run without the regular gathering down here. Before we get it forever there, we get a taste of it down here, and it's a sweet taste. Now that we, that's why we emphasize here, we sing to one another. We see one another. After the sermon, we say hey to one another. How are you doing to one another? Why do you think one another is such a theme of the New Testament? Because we need each other to grow, to be encouraged, to keep our head up. And this vision gave Daniel just a glimpse that whatever things looked like down below, God was in control being served and worshipped above. The people in his presence are holy. And lastly, just those two lines in verse 10 at the end. His 
justice is holy. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. This is evoking imagery of Revelation 20, the book of life, the final judgment. And he sees that though there are boastful voices down below back in verse 8, this fourth king of this worst kingdom that is just a war machine and destroying that which is around it, he sees there is a judgment coming. And the verdict of God's perfect holy justice is rooted in his holiness. That's why it's never unjust for God to condemn. Because it's rooted in his holiness. It's not rooted in his avarice, his malice. He loves his creation. But he is so holy that when this book is opened, there is one standard he will judge us by, and it is he is holy. And he can't compromise that standard. I know that's hard for us because we can make a standard for something. We're the boss of something, in charge of something. You're a teacher, don't be late for class. And if you are... And then it's like, man, this kid, he's just got it tough. He just can't tie his shoes, let alone make it into class on time. And we compromise the standard. And that, we, we do that all the time. We appreciate when people do it for us. We get pulled over for the ticket. Can't you just cut me a break? Well, the, the, the law says, no, I got to give you a ticket. But can't you show, show some grace? Here's the reality, God's holiness, as we just saw, his name, his appearance, his presence, all of it demands there is no compromise. But as we will see in verses 13 and 14, there is a solution. But it's never to compromise the holiness of God. And we just have to deal with that. He demands, be holy as I am holy. And Christ repeated that. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's absolute. Because to compromise that means he's no longer holy. And if he's no longer holy, he's no longer set apart. He's no longer worthy of praise. So that's where this vision ends. Of the ancient of days and his incomprehensibility. But there is something comprehensible. Verses 11 and 12. And that is this sound that... Daniel writes, verse 11, I looked then because this sound of great words was, was, was overwhelming me. He is, he is captivated by a vision of the ancient of days, and yet he hears somebody run in their mouth. This is the all-time worst. You know you've played with the guy or gal or been around the person that you just say, man, just continues to run his mouth. I wish somebody would shut it up. If you think you deal with that on a daily basis with someone, let me introduce you to the horn in verse 11. Daniel is in a vision of the ancient of days over all time and eternity. And this little guy is speaking great words, prideful words, boastful words. We'll find out next week in the interpretation a little more about that. But all we know now is despite the greatness and glory of God, it doesn't change the prerogative of this prideful king. He's still down on earth running his mouth. And we may just be like, do something about it. What? 
Why does he let this guy go on? Well, he does for a while, and then look what happens. Verse 11, just like that, and then I took a look, and the beast was killed, and his body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. Kaput, just like that. As boastful, as powerful as this um, fourth beast was, going back to verse seven, dreadful and strong and terrifying and devouring, and it's a war machine. Whatever king or kingdom this represents, it's just gone when God wants him to be gone. He is irreverent and even in man's eyes impressive and he might be important in the moment, but he is insignificant to God. As all four kingdoms were we saw last week, what was the common theme? It was God who was allowing. The first kingdom, a mind of a man given to that beast. Second kingdom, that bear-like beast in verse 5, told to arise and devour much flesh. Verse 6, dominion was given to the leopard with wings. Why? Because the God of heaven is in control. And so when he's done allowing this king to serve God's purposes, he's out. Just as quickly as you can read verse 11. And then verse 12 is for the rest of the beasts. That's just such a, a wonderfully condescending tone. As for the rest of the beasts, I added that, maybe not Daniel. Their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. All that's saying is God has the prerogative sometimes to wipe one leader off the map and another just remove their dominion, remove their power. That's what he's shown so far in Daniel. He can remove it from someone. He doesn't have to, like Belshazzar, immediately end not just Belshazzar's life at the end of chapter 5, but even what? The reign of Babylon. Now, he can do that just like that, or he can remove the dominion. He can take the power away, but he could prolong their life. What does that, God te what does that teach us? He's, he's sovereign, he's in control. Whether he lets live or he just says, no, I'm done with you, king. And I'm just as sovereign to let you live and have no power anymore. We're moving on from you. It, it's sovereign in both directions. What's the big takeaway from this, though? As we want to say, what should we learn from this? Well, it's the, it's the incomprehensible ancient of days that needs to be more weighty in our lives and not the comprehensible transient light passing voice of the mockers today that's my takeaway for you we should we can comprehend all all the naysayers that take christ out of christmasers we can hear what they say we can comprehend them but when you put that on the scale next to the incomprehensible, all-powerful, ancient of days, what should really weigh us down versus lift us up? Because you can, especially this month, where we do feel the sorrows of our culture wanting to push Christ to the margins. But don't be weighed down by it. Weigh yourself down with this incomprehensible, glorious, heavy God. And then just listen to the talking horn or don't and let it be what it is. It's light, that voice, isn't it?
That's the way you view it. Be, be aware even in the way over the next month your heart can get weighed down. And maybe it's not with some talking head on the view who, who's saying, you know, remove Jesus from this or that. That might be one thing to be aware of, but be aware of just the, the, the voice of the age that wants to make this season something other than a celebration of God and of Christ and a distraction from it. And I, I sensed it already yesterday watching a, um, a big game, Michigan-Ohio State. Both teams 11-0. Big whoop. But the way that the, the commentators before the, games were ta- before the game was talking about it, you know, they asked the one ex-coach of Ohio State, you know, and he goes, well, this, this isn't just a game. For, for people in Ohio and people of Michigan, this is a way of life. He was dead serious. And he's right and he's wrong. Sadly, he's right. I watched a quarter, flipped it off, went and did some work, came back in the fourth with a few minutes left, and Michigan had the game in the bag, and it's in Ohio State, so 100,000 fans there are hanging their heads. I mean, you would have thought the world came to an end, and for some of them it did, because that's all they have. So in, in some ways, that coach was right, but sadly, he's wrong. How insignificant that game is. Just gone. And that's what weighs on me. That's what hits me. Is Adam, what do you get caught up in down here that wants to tell you something's more weighty than it should be? The advertisements between the commercials for the holidays were, were calling out to me. That, that little voice boasting a great thing. Adam, your kids need that. If you're a good dad, you buy them that. There was this one ad for this dribbling thing you know where your kid gets this ball synced up to something some app on your phone or or tablet and if they watch it and learn how to dribble like magic johnson around the back through the hoop you know all that whatever so why so because i want my kid to be the best so i better buy him that because adam you don't want a kid that's not as good as some of the other dad's kids in the church you know it's a voice And if I don't have the money to get all the stuff that they're telling me I need, the next ad was for DraftKings. I don't have the money this Christmas. Hey, we'll give you a credit of 200 bucks to place a friendly wager today. It's It's just there. It's just there all around you. And we're in this world. We're not of it. So be aware of it around you this next month. And put in the balance 9 and 10, the ancient of days, and what really matters with what is just so passing. And and here's the great thing. I mean, as if the imbalance between 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, the incomprehensible versus the comprehensible chatter of this passing king, we get to move to the next two verses to end this section, to the next mountain peak. Looking back, we see the Ancient of Days. Looking forward, we see the Invincible Son of Man. How kind is is God's word to us to say, yeah, you are living in 11 and 12 right now. That's the world you're in, in that valley. But you can look up 
And on both sides of you is this Ancient of Days and this Son of Man. And the Son of Man is invincible. Let's talk about his invincibility. First, Daniel looks up in verse 13 and he, he sees in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now just pause there. Anytime we hear this language in the Old Testament of the clouds of heaven and someone coming, it ain't somebody from below. Cloud imagery associated with the Lord's appearance is as old as Exodus. And God leading his people in Exodus 13 with what? A pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And you have it here in Daniel 7. The fire, the cloud. During the revelation of God on Sinai, it was covered by a cloud. Psalm 68.4 says, sing to God, sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and rejoice before him. Psalm 104, 3 and 4 says, he makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. So when he sees this vision of one like a son of man coming on clouds, this is uh, not in the same category as the vision he was seeing as ones creeping up out of the sea. What comes from below is from below. Jesus teaches that. Throughout the Gospel of John, chapter 3. There's that which comes from the earth, but you need to be born again from above. I have a message for you that comes from heaven. And so this messenger is coming from heaven, one like a son of man. There is no impurity in this person like there was in the persons of verses 1 through 8. Notice the distinction. 1 to 8, every person, creature has corruption to the degree of that fourth beast. No creaturely description can be offered. But here you have one like a son of man and he can come to the ancient of days and be presented before him. And there you see that this son of man is unlike any other creature. He can stand in the presence of the ancient of days because he must be holy as he is holy. No one else can approach God that way except this one like a son of man coming to the ancient of days. And this is a coronation of a king he, like That's the language. He's presented before him. And as he is presented in his holiness before the ancient of days, what is given back to him? All the failures of man in Genesis 3 and on to do what God created him to do. We said last week that where the first man was given dominion, Adam was told to rule and to subdue in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and he failed and we failed. And every king fails, we saw last week. And Adam was given glory, created in an image of God, and it was corrupted by sin and has been corrupted by sin ever since then. In the kingdom that we were to give oversight to, we failed in that too. God's kingdom on earth was meant to tell his glory to the ends of the earth, and Adam failed and we fail. And yet here is one son of man, who is now given dominion and glory and kingdom. And in all the ways in which the first Adam and every subsequent son of Adam fails, this one does not. He alone is worthy. It's the imagery in Revelation 4 and 5. Who is the one worthy to open the scroll, the title deed to the universe? No one was until one like the Son of Man, a lamb slain before the foundation of the world comes. He alone is worthy. 
where every single other son of man failed ever since Genesis chapter 3, this one succeeds. And the, the where's Waldo of the Old Testament, as in who is this son of man? Who is this king of kings? Who are we looking for? It starts all the way back in the garden at the curse. Genesis 3.15 God curses Satan the serpent and mentions there'll be another to come to win. Where this Adam failed, there'll be another son of Adam, son of man that won't fail. God said this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So the question from Genesis 3 on is who will be the perfect son of man for the job? What man born of a woman would be able to defeat death itself? Chris read it today in Psalm 24 when the question was asked, who is this king of glory? Who is he? Where is he? And then you fast forward into the time of Christ and with his disciples there's, there's a, a raging chaotic sea and there is winds blowing it like the scene in Daniel 7 again. And these 12 frightened fishermen look around at each other after the calm and say, who is this man that even the what? That wind and those seas obey him. Who's like this son of man? Why don't we let a man from Nazareth answer the question for himself? Mark 1.14, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Who is this man that could come and say God's kingdom has arrived with his call? And all throughout his life. And we were in the gospel of Mark for a year and a half. And what were the naysayers? What were the people of his time constantly asking? Who is this guy to say these things and to do these things? And what was Jesus' answer all the time? Never referred to himself as, well, I have the. What did he say again and again? The son of man. The son of man. The son of man. He was not talking about, oh, you know, son of man, that means Jesus was fully man. And son of God means he was fully God. No, no. When he talks about the son of man, he's talking about the man in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And he's trying to say, that's me. It's his favorite self-designation. It's used 50 times in separate occasions in the Gospels, 70 times overall, and only one person is allowed to say it or thinks to say it. Guess who? Jesus. He says it about himself. Starting in Mark 2, chapter 10, or Mark chapter 2, uh, verse 10, when he's being accused of blasphemy for healing a man, no, for saying that man's sins are forgiven. Nobody's allowed to do that. What's Jesus' response in Mark 2.10? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The lesser thing, to heal. The greater thing, to forgive. The thing that only a holy God has the right to do. And he could do it. 
And this never changes in the rest of the storyline of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You read throughout, and when he talks about what the Son of Man can do, he's doing that which no one else is allowed to do. Forgive sin, have authority over the darkness and the demonic. No one else can do that. But the question becomes, what did the Son of Man come to do? Did he come to just be the most powerful king that ever lived? Would that have accomplished anything for the sinner? What did he come to do? He tells us three times, Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.33. And Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer. Must suffer. A king. And be rejected and be killed and after three days rise again. The son of man? The one who could come to the ancient of days riding on the clouds of heaven? What's he come to do? Mark 10, 45, he did not come to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom. That's the glory of the Son of Man. In Daniel, all they could see was, all he could see is this high and glorious and lifted up King of Kings who's worthy to receive the dominion and the glory and the kingdom. But then we get a picture of the Son of Man in the Gospels, and he's suffering and he's gonna die, but he's gonna rise again. That's what he came to do. And no matter how many times he tried to explain it, his audience didn't want to receive it. The low point coming, it's the night of his betrayal, asked by the high priest in Mark 14, 61, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And what was the reaction of that high priest, that holy man? Was it worship? No, it was the accusation of heresy. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. So I need to ask you this morning, with the facts laid out in front of you, about who the Son of Man is, what do you say about him? It's crystal clear in the scriptures what he says about himself. That he is the Son of Man. And he came the first time not to ride on clouds of heaven down to earth. No, how did he come? How are we going to celebrate it the next month? He came in the lowliest of ways. He gave up all the, all the power and prerogative of heaven to come down and reach us where we are at in our sin. Do you believe that about Jesus Christ? With everything in you. And not just believe it, but you love it because you realize how unlovable we are in our sinfulness. How undeserving. 
That layer after layer in our hearts is, is layers of sin that is underneath that is more sin. Why that's on my mind is because I'm attempting my hand at a little bit of home renovation. And I'm pulling up tile because the tile is ugly, the surface. And what do I find under that ugly tile? Rotten floorboard. And when I'm pulling that up, what's under that layer? Plywood that needs to go. And I need to get down to the studs because that's how twisted, sorry, that's how gross that floor is. My heart is the same. Why do I need a savior? Why do I need a king? Why do I need a son of man who doesn't just merely skim the surface of my sin? Because when I dig down deep enough, I find layer after layer after layer of sin, of depravity, of self, of pride, of lust, of anger. You name it, I got it, and so do you. But the Son of Man doesn't leave you in your sin. He offers you complete and entire cleansing by his blood. Complete forgiveness for your sins. All of it down to the studs. And he's not scared away by it. This is exactly why he came. To forgive you for all of it. Do you see yourself in need of it? That's who the Son of Man is. Who came not in glory the first time. He came in his humility. And he offered his life as that sacrifice for sinners. But he's coming back a second time in glory. He's coming back the way that Daniel 7.14 describes him the second time. He has the dominion. He has the glory. He has the kingdom. And every knee will bow. All peoples and nations and languages will serve him. There won't be one unbowed knee on his return. And it will never be reversed after that. Why? What does it say? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which won't pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He is the invincible son of man, meaning in his second coming, it is no longer for salvation. It's for judgment. All of it's his. It has already been captured by him. In his life and death and resurrection, he has defeated it. He'll come back to roll it and reign it. Where do you stand with him today? Because the offer of salvation still stands today. This is the, 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 the gap that we live in between 9 and 10 and 13 and 14. And all this gap that we live in between these two heights is a time of grace, my friends. He already did the work for your salvation. He offers you himself in forgiveness. That is grace from God. Blessed are you in this generation, Jesus says in Luke chapter 10 to his disciples. He says, blessed are your eyes that see the things that you have seen. And then he goes on to say this in verse 24. For I tell you that many prophets and kings, guys like Daniel, kings like David. 
You think they had it good because Daniel got to see a vision of the ancient of days or David got to speak to the Lord about his kingdom and a son sitting on the throne would never go away? They had it pretty good, we would think. What does Jesus say to us, the disciples, then and now? Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and didn't see it and to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. Are you hearing it today? You've got it better than Daniel. You've got the fullness of the gospel laid out for you today. Daniel didn't have that. He longed to look into it. As did David. As did everyone before the cross. And you've got it right here. And Jesus says, blessed are you that can see this today. This is not just some germane issue about the, the end times. That just, okay, you know, that was cool. God wins. No. Christ our Lord says, if you have eyes to see what Daniel 7 saw, but then add to it what Christ came to do in the gospel, blessed are your eyes. Do you feel that? That should produce worship. In, in eagerness to look into the word of God at Christ. Who 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, he, the glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. It's been revealed. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. So do you hear the voice of Christ calling you today to follow him? To turn from your sin, just as he said, repent, turn from your sin, and believe the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to save you. Do you respond to his voice today? That's what he's calling you to do. And if you're in Christ today, blessed are your eyes that have seen what you've seen. So what are you going to do with that? Here's my assignment for you. I hope in a month little less than that today, the 27th, on Christmas Day, that it's not just cliche to say, you know, the greatest gift is Jesus, you know, God with us. And I hope that means something on Christmas Day. And, and here's my assignment. 24 days leading up to Christmas, 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Start this week in chapter one, in your own quiet time. Start your day with one chapter. And look for the glory of Christ, the Son of Man in the Gospel of Luke. One chapter a day in the morning. Write down just one thing that captivates your heart about Christ. That, why? Because Luke, he says it. Blessed are your eyes to see it. You'll be blessed for it. I'm not selling something he can't pay. But don't leave it yourself. Find somebody else who's doing it and, and call them later that evening. Go to your life group. Text a person and say, what'd you see today of the glory of Christ in Luke? How are you blessed to see it? And you do that for 24 days leading up to Christmas. How rich will that day be? Basking in the glories of Christ, the invincible son of man, and in the incomprehensible ancient of days. Tuning out whatever it is in the next month that's going to try to, what? Be in your ear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning.
And we are blessed to see what we get to see looking back. And in your wisdom and wonder, you allowed prophets like Daniel and kings like David to look forward and to see by your revelation a glimpse of the Messiah on the front end and to look forward in faith. They believed by faith that there was a kingdom to come. And here we are now, thousands of years later, looking backwards. And that's why we're blessed. There's nothing confusing about that, Father. You're kind to have put us where we are in this place and in this time so that we could see more of the glory of Jesus, our Savior. Help us today to see that and to celebrate it and to just say thank you in our hearts. Amen.